0: If you will, grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus, and as you're turning over there, let me kind of set the stage of where we're at over the next few weeks. Uh, If you were here in 2016, raise your hand and hold it up. All right, so about half the crowd, okay? That means the other half wasn't here, or they just don't know where they were at in 2016, And out of that group that's in the 2016 range, how many of you guys, you know, were in children's church and and so forth and so on, that's the last time I had done this series. I did it before in 2011, again in 2016, and if there's breath in my body, I will continue to do it the rest of my life. And the reason being is this series will hit you right where you live, and it's just going to challenge you and I in our daily walk with Christ. And sometimes I feel like, especially being a member of this church and a pastor for 16 years here as the lead pastor, but even continuing on after that, we can get so enamored with the deep study of the Word of God. And if you hang out here long enough, we'll take you on some wild rides on how deep that book is. But I want to assure you that the God that you and I serve wants you to know all those things, or he wouldn't have put it in there. But he's more concerned about your relationship daily with him than he is any other thing. You were created to be an eternal worshiper of Jesus Christ. That's why you were made. When Adam fell, and we all are made in Adam, there became this chasm or this separation between us and God. And through the person of Jesus Christ, he restored All of that that was lost in the garden, and he didn't restore it for one day in the future. Everything that we need to have a personal walk with Jesus Christ is available to us right now. We're not waiting to Revelation 4 to start worshiping. We're not getting to Revelation chapter 4 to start walking hand in hand with the Lord. This is something that should be done every day of our life, and this series will be one of those things that will challenge you that. Now, if you're one of the few that was here in 2011 and here in 2016, I used this analogy a few Wednesday nights ago. My my wife's an amazing cook, and a lot of our, our life is wrapped around what are we having for dinner. And uh, one, of the, one of the items that she makes that I love, and I'm a pasta guy, and it doesn't take long for you to figure that out if you just look. Uh, I love the carbs. The carbs don't love me. However, she makes this Panay pasta that is just unbelievable. I mean, I'd slap somebody to get to it. It's that good. Now, we have it on a regular basis. That doesn't mean she pulls it out of the refrigerator from the last time we had it and heats it up. The recipe is always the same, but the ingredients are fresh. And so even though I'm pulling out an older series understand for me, the ingredients are fresh. You go through the process again. Uh, On the pew up here are my original notes from 2011. I did not pull them out until this morning. And I just overlooked them during, you know, the original singing here. And the only reason I did that is because I wanted to go through this series again and study it afresh for myself. And even though the The outline, the recipe is going to be the same. It's still fresh ingredients. And even if you were here last time, I can assure you, if you ate her penne pasta, you wouldn't go, I've already had that. You'd be like, yeah, I'll take some more of that. Okay? And that's exactly how this is going to be. Now, we are going to be challenging you specifically today about daily reading your Bible and getting in the Word of God every day of your life. One of the great things that uh, Justin said about Spurgeon a few weeks back when we talk about the difference between praying and reading our Bible, which is the most important, and Spurgeon said, what's more important, breathing in or breathing out? And I thought that was just amazing thought, because prayer and the Bible go hand in hand. And even though we are going to challenge you about some praying today, uh, the whole essence today is about finding some time in your life to separate yourself from everything else and get alone with this book. And not to get alone with this book in, with the intent of studying this book. We'll get to that. But just hanging out with God and, and having a time with just you and the Lord through this book. And so we're going to be challenging you with that. And one of the things that I want to encourage you with is you already know, hopefully many of you know, that our church owns a website called 365 org. Uh, it's 365 Days of Pursuit. And then Mark, Justin's father, wrote a book called 52 Weeks of Pursuit. Now let me kind of break this down for you. The original 365 Days of Pursuit, Mark did when he was pastoring. And he sent that to me as a young pastor in Word form, and we were able to use it for our church. And what it basically does is allow you to get up every day with a, with a reading assignment in your Word, but before you go there, you can go to this website and read what you're about to read in the Scripture so that it kind of gives you an idea. Well, a few years back before Mark went to be with the Lord is he redid that, revamped 365 days of pursuit, and made 52 weeks of pursuit. And both of these items are available to you. You can get that off of Amazon, uh, or you can get the 365 off of our dop.org. Both are available to you and will help you. Now, one of the other things we're going to do, and Tyler's going to figure this out right now, uh, Tyler's been trying to put Corey Coffey and Conspiracy together on a Podcast, and we're eventually going to do that, but that's not the pressing thing at the moment. One of the things that we're going to try to do starting in January is have a podcast of Justin and myself recording every week a podcast describing to you 52 weeks of pursuit, and it will allow you to get up and listen to a podcast of just us explaining, hey, here's what you're daily reading today, and we'll be able to go into a little bit of detail so that when you are getting into certain parts of Scripture, what we don't want you to do is just go, oh, yeah, i got to read those three or four chapters today. No, we want you to go in and know what you're looking for so that it makes the book come even more alive to you. Now, don't wait until January. Um, These these items are available right now for you. You just got to put in a little extra work. You got to read a little bit, okay? Now uh, we're going to make it easier for you later on. But we're in here in a series called Habits, okay? And what you want to know is that acquiring good habits matter. Acquiring bad habits will really mess you up. And let's just be honest: we all understand what habits are. Habit is an acquired behavior, our behavior pattern regularly followed until it's almost involuntary. You, You ever see people cracking their knuckles? I do it in my sleep. I don't even know I'm doing it, and I do it. It's a habit. Uh, uh, my stepdad, when I was growing up, smoked two to three packs of cigarettes a day. And he'd sit down there in his office, and that's one of the reasons I don't smoke or never have, because I watched enough of those type of people when I was growing up to go, ugh, all right? However, he would smoke a cigarette, get a phone call, set the cigarette down in the ashtray, pick up the phone, start talking to somebody, and out of habit, Pull his cigarettes out of his pocket, pull another one and fire it up, and next thing you know, he's got two in the ashtray. Just out of habit. Okay, those are bad habits, right? Whistling is a habit. I whistle all the time, don't even know I'm doing it. My kids find me in stores. Oh, there's dad, he's whistling. I don't even realize I'm doing it. I do the Andy Griffith thing a lot, and I was on a job site the other day, and the guy goes, hey, Andy, come here a second. I'm like, who are you, all right? So now, at the end of your life, one day we're going to have a funeral for you, or somebody is, and they're going to wheel you down, and somebody is going to stand up in a place like this, and they're going to talk about your life. And you know what your life is? The sum totals of the habits and the decisions you make. And so you can either develop good habits or bad habits. We're all going to have them. It's just a matter of how we develop them. It takes an average of 21 days to develop a habit. Three weeks it takes three days to break one. I'll give you a prime example. Uh, Christy and I get up every morning, 3, 3.25 a.m., alarm goes off. She gets 10 minutes. That's all lot a lot. And we're in the car heading to the gym. 3.40, 3.45, every morning I'm at the gym. You say, how do you do that? It's not easy. It's a habit though now. It's part of our routine. You know how quick it it could end, though? Take about three days off and see how hard it is to get back to the gym. But it takes about three weeks to get that into your system to make it a part of your routine. And even though I am not asking you to make God part of your habit, as far as a just a routine you do involuntary, we're asking you to make God The priority in your life that the habits of your life are centered around him as an individual. And these are the things that we're going to get to you. Now, here, here, and this is where we're going to nail down today. Do you understand the Christian life is not just about one decision in an altar? But it's the daily decisions to live the life that Christ intended for you. Now, listen to me. Because of the the 60s and the 70s and the push for bus ministries and stuff like that. And I'm not knocking it, but listen to me. What's happened is we pushed so many people into saying a prayer so that we could get that, oh, how many did you lead the Lord? I got seven today. I won this many people to God. And we get them to say a prayer and go, okay, now you're not going to hell when you die. See you later. And that was the Christian movement. The only problem with that is, is guys, we're all for evangelism and we're all for getting people to call upon the name of Jesus to be saved. But do you understand that's not the ending result? That's the beginning result. That's where it all starts. If you join the Peachtree Road Race and all you do is stand at the starting line, you didn't do anything. What we're asking people to do is to live out the daily life that Christ intended for you, and you're going to see that in today's lesson, and I want you to understand this whole series is five weeks long. We're basically going to take the acrostic, which somebody else created, but I can tell you 100% of the, the volume behind it is me, but here's what you have, H, hanging out for God, a, accountability, B, my Bible memorization, I, involvement in the local church, and T is tithing, and S is for studying the Bible. We are going to try to break these down and make them a part of our daily habits in our life. And hopefully when we're done, you'll see the importance of what these habits will become. Now, we're going to start by asking you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 7 through 8. And then we're going to bounce later from there, and we're going to end up in chapter 16, and we're going to be talking about some manna, and how that manna, and that picture of how that's going to apply to our daily life. And as you're turning over there to Exodus, if you're not already there, I want you to understand that this whole thing of Exodus is a picture. And do you understand when we think of the word Exodus, it literally means to exit, to bring out. And that whole story of God bringing his people out of the taskmaster and the bondage of sin and bringing them through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, do you understand that more column inches of your Bible is dedicated to that one story than any other story? Like, that ought to ring some bells. Like, whoa, whoa, why would God want to spend so much time letting you and I know about how they came out of Exodus? How did God got them out of Egypt? Like, let's be honest, I've never been to Egypt, why do I care? Well, it's because God works through similitude. And he understands that doctrine at times can be difficult to chew. And so what he does is gives us a picture book in the Old Testament to help us understand our life. And the Exodus story is not just a portion of Israel's history, but it is a portrait of the Christian life. And so before we even end up in Exodus, you, you hold your place there, and we're going to bounce to 1 Corinthians real quick, and I'm going to set the stage. And I want you to understand, Paul comes on the scene, and he's telling you about this Exodus story. And he says, moreover, brethren, I would not have you, not have you, you should be ignorant. In other words, i got to sometimes go this way. It's been a while since I've been down on the floor, all right? Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, speaking of the manna and the quail, and he goes on and he says, listen, and all did drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was christ and he's talking about the water that came out of the rock and by the way the rock wasn't just a type of christ that rock was christ you said well how is that possible i don't know i'm not god i just believe what i read right now notice here he says but with many of them god was not well pleased For they were, look at the word, overthrown in the wilderness. Now he gets down in verse 6 here, and he does it again in verse 11. We won't go there, but in verse 6 he says, Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. In other words, I've given you all those column column inches of space to tell you about the Exodus story so that you wouldn't end up in the same mess they did. And I want you to understand that this word all just keeps showing up, right? Now watch this. Each one of those things that he described, he lets you know, he says, that all of our fathers were under the cloud, meaning they all had experienced God's guidance. Not only that, they all passed through the sea. They had all experienced God's deliverance. Then they were all baptized onto Moses in the cloud and the sea. They'd all experienced God's power. Then they all go out into the wilderness and they eat of the quail and the manna and drink of the rock. They'd all experienced God's provision. But look at verse 5. With most of them, God wasn't pleased. And here's what's sad. Inside of this building, the vast majority of people sitting here today could say, yes, Corey, I've experienced God's guidance. I remember when the Holy Spirit of God showed me I was lost without Christ and guided me to the place of trusting Christ as my Savior. And yes, I've experienced God's deliverance where God freed me from the taskmaster of sin in Egypt And delivered me from my sin. And the penalty of sin. God has delivered me. I've experienced that. And all of us can say. Man I've experienced the power of God. In my life. Who who regenerated me. And justified me. And transformed my life. And who couldn't. In this building. Say they haven't trusted God's provision. To provide for us daily. But But the sad thing is, the vast majority of Christians will experience all four of those things the same way that the nation of Israel did and never actually please God. Now remember, the goal wasn't to get them out of Egypt. The goal was to get them into Canaan. And the vast majority of them that were delivered never made it to Canaan. Do you understand that he's given you a picture? Guys, do you understand that this taskmaster, this bondage you're in in Egypt? Yeah, I, I see that, God. He said, that's what it was like to be a sinner lost without God. You were, you were controlled by sin. And God says, I came in with the Passover lamb and delivered you from that. And then I brought you through the, the Red Sea. And wiped away your past. Yeah, you you understand that, church? Yeah, I got it. And I brought you into the wilderness and fed you with my provision and my manna. Yeah, I got it. But I wanted to bring you into the land. And most people will never make it that far. And the vast majority of Christians today that sit in church who know Jesus Christ as their Savior can say, yeah, I've experienced all that but they've never actually entered into the land of Canaan. John 10:10 Jesus comes along and he says, "I came to give you life." And life more abundantly. See, there was a comma there, right? The vast majority of us Christians live on this side of the comma. I got life. I've been saved. But they never actually live in a life of abundance. Now, and I'm trying to be nice. I, I've been praying. I'm, do, I'm doing a series on the King James. I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more, you know, Luke puts me out on the internet. And I'm the first guy to get ripped on. They all love Justin. Somebody calls me a hick. I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But either way, I'm trying to be nice. Listen, I don't care what Creflo says. The life and having it more abundantly is not cars and planes and trips and money. That life and having it more abundantly is this walk with God. It's it's this walk that was done in the garden originally. Where God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. Do you know when the cool of the day is? Just as a side note, that would be in the morning, Just hang that thought for just a second. But what I want to do as we get over here into Exodus, I want you to look at verse 7 and 8 with me as we read it. He says, the Lord said, I have surely seen the afflictions of my people which are in Egypt. In other words, God saw that we were locked in bondage of sin, right? Oh, and he says, man, I see it, guys. And I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters; for I know their sorrows. For I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian. Isn't that great? Isn't it awesome that God cared enough about you to save your worthless soul from hell? Man, it's—and not just hell. I, I don't know about your life. You know who my biggest enemy is? It ain't Satan. It's me. And man, he says, man, I've come down to deliver you from you. And he says, listen, to bring them up out of the land into a good land. He says, man, I brought you out to bring you in. And the vast majority of Christians experience what it is to be brought out. But most never understand what it means to be brought in. Watch this. Let's look at number one, the purpose of the exodus. Why did he deliver them? Hey, if I went around today and I said, hey, why did God save you? The vast majority of people, and I keep using that word vast, but I don't know whether, I guess I need to sharpen my thothorith. F- f- if we ask people, why did God save you? I keep me from going to hell. Well, yeah, that's, that's a true statement. But that's not why he saved you. He did not save you to keep you from going to hell. That was part of it. But that wasn't the ultimate goal. The goal wasn't go, I don't want you to go to hell. So here you are, now go live your life however you want to. No, he says, I brought you out of that to bring you in. Now watch, we're going somewhere. What's the purpose? Number one, God provided God's, God provided the people with redemption. All right. Notice here verse seven. He says, "And I came or come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptian. Well, of course, God came to keep you from going to hell. And I'm so thankful for it. But watch, as we go on, number two is a relationship. It's not just to bring redemption, but it's a relationship. It's about you hanging out with God and you having a personal relationship with Jesus. And you've heard it ad nauseum from this pulpit. We hate religion. There's not one bit of religion we like. What we have tried to promote is what it is like for you to get up in your daily life and to walk with God. That's why you were created Trust me, if you would have been the only sinner, Christ would have still came and died for you. He loves you. But he didn't just come and die on a cross and be butchered by mankind just so you wouldn't have to go to hell. The idea was more than that. He wants to be in a relationship with you. Notice this. He said, I brought them out of the land to bring them up into a good land flowing with milk and honey. Once again, I spend most of my life correcting independent Baptists. That's my job, I guess. Now you see the attitude. If you deal with independent Baptists, you'd have an attitude too. We spend so much of our time trying to picture Canaan as heaven. And God has never implied Canaan and heaven together. I'll give you another one. You're not destined for heaven forever. Yes, if you die right now as a saved individual, you're going to be in heaven. But you understand that after the tribulation, Jesus is coming back to here. And I don't know where you're going, but I'm coming with him. And for a thousand years, I'm going to be on this planet. Then it says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, and we're going to be here on a new planet. You're not spending the eternity in heaven. The goal isn't to get you to heaven. The goal is to have you here in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus is coming here. Now, this is important because we're talking about, he says, man, I, I brought you out of the Egyptians because I wanted to bring you into this good land. Now watch, Leviticus says it again, I am the Lord your God, which... Brought you forth out of of the land of Egypt, and then adds this little word, to, so he's going to give you the reason why he did it. Hey, I brought you out of hell, I brought you out of Egypt, I brought you out of your sin so you wouldn't have to go to hell. No, read. I brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, I brought you out of the world, I brought you out of your sin to give you the land of Canaan, and here's the key. To be your God. He's implying communion. Next Sunday, this church is going to have a communion service. You know why we call it communion? You ever, do we just regurgitate whatever we, or do we actually dissect why we call things what we call them? The Lord's Supper, communion, right? Because you know what we're actually going to do next Sunday? The church is going to gather around, and we are going to commune with the Lord through that service. You say, why don't we do it every week like the Catholics? Hold up. We do do it every week. Not like the Catholics, but we do it every week. You say, we don't have communion every week. Yes, we do. You know what what it means to commune? Speak to, hang out with you ever heard of a commune? It's the same word. It's to hang out with. We came in here this morning to commune with the Lord. And most of us get that. But let me let me help you out a little bit. Tomorrow morning God wants to have a communion service with you. Nobody else is going to be around, but he wants to commune with you. I don't need to eat a wafer. I don't need to drink grape juice. Now we do it as symbolic from time to time around here to remind us. But I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to fellowship through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to open up the bread of life and commune with him. And the purpose was to bring you out, to bring you in. Look at this. He says it again in Deuteronomy. The context is, hey, when your kids get older and ask, hey, what's up with this thing? Here's what you're to say. Then thou shalt say unto thy son, we We were We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders and great and sore and upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from hence... That he might bring us in and give us the land. I'll give you a better one. Now, we're not going there today, but here's another picture of the same thing. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. You realize that? Every marriage is supposed to present the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world through picture form. Now, here's what Paul says about a marriage he says, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife. November 18th of this year, Zach wants to be so stinking much like me, chose the same date. It's rough to be people's idols. (laughs) So this year, November 18th, it'll be 28 years that I've been married. Now, how awesome would it be if I just stood up and said, hey, I just want to praise the Lord that 28 years ago I got married and then just sat down. That's what most people do with their salvation. Hey, way back in 19-whatever, I said this prayer and praise the Lord. I'm going to rattle you a little bit, but hang with me. Big deal. If that's all you have is some moment way back when, you don't have much. Because if you're going to describe 28 years of marriage, I'd hope you wouldn't describe the day you got married. I'll give you a better one. Could you imagine the week I'm about to get married? You know, normally the whole bride thing, they're all giddy and everything else, and the guy's just like, can we get this over with? Now, could you imagine that week Christy's like, "Woo! I'm getting out of my parents' house this week. Now, if you knew my mother-in-law, you'd understand that. (laughs) However, however, as the dude... If all she's excited about is just getting out of her parents' house, how do you think that's going to make me feel? Oh, really? That's what this is about? Just getting you out of your parents' house? No, I thought this was about joining up and having a relationship with me. Okay, and if all you have is, oh, I got out of hell. I got that little get out of hell card so that when I die, I got life insurance. Oh, no, God, I can't go to hell. I got this card. Trust me, if that's all you have, you don't have anything. Because he didn't get you out of anything just to get you out of it. He got you out of that to bring you into a personal relationship with him. And what you should be talking about in your daily life is not the day you started, but the day and day and day after process of what it is to walk with him. It's to be joined with him. And it's all about hanging out with God. Now, watch this. So now, we saw the purpose is not just to get you out, to bring you in, but next of all, let's look at the plight. Now, notice here, back in Corinthians, you don't have to turn here, but he says, listen, all those, Egypt, or all those uh, Israelites that came out, there was about 2 million of them. You realize that? But there was about 600,000 adult men. So when God says, but with many of them, the word many translates 599,998. Out of 600 men, over the age of 20, only two entered in. The vast majority were overthrown in the wilderness. The vast majority of Christians today who have called on Jesus to be their Savior, the vast majority of them will make it to heaven. Absolutely disappointing the Lord, never having understood what it means to enter in to Canaan's land and live out the Christian life and have it more abundantly. And you're going to find out in just a second. Watch this. How long were they in the wilderness? You can say it out loud. We're all together. 40 years, right? All right, God, we're real deep in the Bible today. All right, now, 40 years, they wander around the wilderness. Notice what Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3 says. There was an 11-day journey. That's how long it should have took. 11 days to go about 300 miles. Wedstrong is in Nashville again this year. It's about 300 miles away according to what we understand you should be able to walk that in 11 days can you imagine if you said All right, i'm walking to nashville it takes you 40 years that's what they did do you understand that trip that sh- should have took 11 days took 40 years the distance of 300 miles they averaged 36 yards a field goal a day or listen now they obviously didn't pick up their tent move 36 yards and sit down they just set out in the wilderness not doing anything most Christians have that same plight. Not accomplishing anything. 250 yards a week, 49 miles or 49 days per mile. That's kind of a waste of time, isn't it? Now watch, and we're going to close with this. And you think, all right, he's done, 1105. Good luck. I, the plan for the manna. In Exodus. Now, watch this. We figured out why he's brought us out to bring us in, right? And he's saying, Listen, I've got a way to sustain you while you're in the wilderness. Do you understand? If God wouldn't have done it, they'd all starve to death. There was nothing out there in that wilderness. But God says, I'm going to give you something to sustain you until you come into the land of Canaan. And remember, He's not expecting them to take 40 days. That sustaining was to bring them into a land. And he says, I'm going to feed you. I'm going to feed you with manna. Now watch this. Exodus 16, 12, and 31. If you turn there in your Bible, you can write down some notes and watch this. All right? Now while you're turning over to chapter 16 of Exodus, understand that John chapter 6, Jesus speaks of this manna. And what he lets them know is these Pharisees are like, please. He says, "Uh, our father Moses gave us manna. And he says, hold up. I think you got a mistake here. My father provided you manna, not Moses. And he says, I got a better manna than any of it. And they're like, well, let us have that manna. And he's like, I am the manna. I am the bread of life. So what I'm going to do is go back and study this manna. And we already know that this manna is pictured as the bread of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We'd all agree that. But there's a something a little extra that you need to figure out. John 1.1, Justin's been speaking of this quite regularly. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word. Word was with God, was God, and all that, right? Now, we're we're thinking, okay, is he talking about this? No, no, no. To clarify, he gets down there to verse 12 and says, uh, and that word became flesh and dwelled among us, right? And so what happens is you have a written word, and then you have a living word, okay? And so what happens is, and you guys have heard me talk about this, and I stole it from Justin's dad. When you have the incarnate word, it's this book in flesh. That what, that's what means incarnate. Have you ever ordered chili con carne? Okay. I bet you've ate it. It's chili with meat. Because you can get chili with just beans. I'm thinking, who does that? Okay. I'm a meat eater. If that bothers you, I don't want to tell you. Right? Now, bottom line, chili con carne is chili with flesh or with meat. The incarnate word is this book in living form. So many times when we're going, hey, let's, let's look at this manna. Does it represent Jesus or does it represent the book? And you go, huh, well, it's just one and the same. You'll figure this out Wednesday night. We absolutely believe in an unadulterated holy book because we believe in a Jesus that's absolutely holy. We expect the book to be absolutely holy and not some aspect of it that we can't get to, but right here in our hands. So when I go through this manna and I start challenging you on getting up tomorrow morning and opening up this book, I want you to understand that this is the tangible item that reveals to you the Jesus that right now you can't touch or feel. But right here in my hands is a copy of him in written form. And when God wants to have a relationship and he wants you to commune with Jesus, is giving you tangible words that you can get up, make yourself a cup of coffee, and sit down somewhere and open up the book and talk to the Lord. Let me tell you the difference between reading your Bible and praying. Praying is when you speak to God. Reading your Bible is when God speaks to you. And if you give me one of these lines, I was praying the other day and God told me, my next question is: uh, Book, chapter, and verse. Because if it wasn't from here, I don't know what you heard. Spirit, right. Yeah, you spirit, all right. It ain't the one that God reveals Himself through. It's this book. You say, "Oh no, no, it's the Holy Spirit." Well, let me just cut in a little bit and say, the Holy Spirit's job. This is according to Jesus. When the Spirit comes. He will testify of me. The Spirit doesn't even talk about Himself. And what He does is He takes this book and brings to your remembrance the things of Jesus. And so as we look at this manna, and you go, I don't get it, Corey. Are we talking about Jesus or are we talking about the book? And I'm going to say, yes. They're one and the same. Now hang with me. Let's let's look at this. Number one, this manna brought assurance from god I right, notice this in exodus 12 he says i heard the murmurings of the children of israel and speaking unto them saying at evening ye shall eat flesh and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread and ye shall know that i am the lord your god how long are they in the wilderness well, we're getting better i hope by the end of this service we got that 40 thing down <laughs> 40 years God provided bread for two million people a day. Do you understand that it would take 240 boxcars, a train with 240 boxcars, that train would be two and a half miles long. That's what it would take to show up every day in the wilderness to provide for these people. And yet God did it over and over and over and over again. One of the things that God wants to do in your life is you use this book to prove assurance to you that I will take care of you. Where do we find that? Where do we find comfort that God will provide? Here. Yet, if we never open it up, if we never spend some time to say, God, remember, he said, I brought you out of that land to bring you into a land so that you would know I'm your God. And yet, this is is what's going down here. Can you imagine that? God showing up and building your faith each and every day. Watch this. Romans 1.17 gives you the Christian life in a nutshell. He says, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed faith to faith. Let me ask you something. How how, how many of your life right now just stinks? Don't raise your hand. I don't need to know it. One of the great things is if your life stinks and you need to talk to somebody, Justin's available. (laughs) How many of your life is going good right now? The old story, you're either in a storm, coming out of a storm, or about to go into a storm. Right? That sums it up. Why is that? Because what God is doing when he's revealing his righteousness from faith to faith is what God has to do is kick your legs out from under you so that you'll hit the mat and you go, oh, no, I can't do it. And God's going, I know, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to work through you and through this situation to make you stronger in faith towards me. So when you go, why me, God? Why not you? Do you know God's less concerned about your service than he is you as a servant? He's going to spend more time dealing with his servant than he is the service. You, you can look at Jonah. You can look at Job. He's not rocked because something ain't quite getting done around here. He's more concerned about you as an individual than the work you do. And he's going to take your life from faith faith to faith every day. Do you not know, understand? With that manna, they didn't get to keep it. They got up, they got filled. They went to bed, no manna. And if God didn't show up the next morning, they weren't going to make it anyway. Let me tell you something. If God doesn't show up in your life, you ain't going to make it either. The problem you're having, if God doesn't solve it, it's not going to get solved. And what he's going to do is take you from faith to faith, and build your faith, and once you pass that test, then I'm going to take you to the next test, and then I'm going to take you to the next one. Where are you going to find comfort in all that? Romans ten seventeen. where is this faith going to come from? From the manna that he has laid out in front of you, and he says, here it is. I'm giving you this to assure you I'm God. Now, next, manna came to where they were. You understand, as Bible believers, we're the only ones on this planet that teach that you do not work your way to God, that God worked his way to you. We're the only group that does it. Everybody else teaches you do something to get to a holy God, and a holy God says, no, 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 you are so defiled, you can't even get to me, I'm going to come to where you're at. And I am going to be there. Do you understand where this manna would have been? It's right there when they came out of their tent. They didn't even have to go nowhere. Do you know what's available to you right here? Now, check this out. Let's just say you woke up, and you're like every stinking brat on this planet. I didn't want to eat that. And by the way, that's what they did. You woke up, oh, man, again. Okay, great. You either ate it, or you walked on it. you either read it or you walk on it. You can get up tomorrow morning, but I just heard Corey babble yesterday. I'm good. Then you essentially walk on the relationship that God has provided for you. It's it's your choice. He's not going to make you, force you into this communion. It's a free gift given to you. Like that manna was free. It didn't cost him anything. It came to where they were at. It was just outside the tent. Manna was small in size. You realize it's nothing big just to get up tomorrow and read a little bit of the Bible, spend a little bit of time with God? It's not a big thing. He's not asking you to do anything. He's not asking you to sell your house and move to Afghanistan and start spreading the gospel. He's just simply saying, hey, man, you want to spend some time with me in the morning? I know you're busy. I know you got to get kids off to school. I know you're, you're working a job. you got all kinds of things. you got laundry. you got all kinds of stuff you need to get accomplished today. He's just asking, you want to spend a little bit of time with me? Nothing big. He's not even asking you to leave your house and come here and do it. He's just asking you to get out of your bed. Find a quiet spot somewhere alone, and hang out with him. Is that a lot to be asked? Seems a small thing for a God who did everything to get us out of Egypt. It's white in color. You realize that? You know what that means? It's purity. This book is absolutely pure. But I want to, this is not Wednesday night. I'm not trying to prove the purity of God's word. Now check this out. I want to show you what it does, though. Notice it's white and it tastes like honey, right? When we get into Psalms 119.9, he says, Where, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? He's asking, what's going to clean up my life? By taking heed to the Word of God. The purity of this book will rub off onto your life if you'll spend some time in it. I, I don't know about this whole generation. I shower two to three times a day. No joke. Shower in the morning after I get back from the gym, and because it's Satan's armpit this time of year, I a lot of times will shower in the afternoon, and then I shower before I go to bed. <clears throat> but I come home sometimes just stinking dirty, smelling, it's horrible, sweat, and I go get in that clean water, and I grab that clean soap, and I wash myself. Every day in your life, if you'll just get up and use a little bit of the purity of this book to get into your life, it'll wash away that sin. That, that part of your life that you are so subjected to, that is always going to be there until it's time to leave and go home and be with the Lord. That old man, that old nature. Ephesians, Paul, when he's speaking of what the Lord was going to do with his bride, he said, I'm going to clean her up. I'm going to sanctify her. How are you going to do it, God? With the washing of this book. And yet it sits on your shelf. How are you ever going to say, Yeah, I love the Lord? How do you know you love him? You may not even like him once you find out what he says in here. Psalms 119, thy word is very pure. Psalms 126, the words of the Lord are pure words. Man, it must be eaten. It's not enough that you own a Bible. Do you know if they would have walked outside, gathered the manna, put it in a basket, and just walked around with it, that it's still starved? It's great. I got it in a basket. I mean, here it is. I got the book. There's some of you. You're really cool. You've tattooed it on yourself. Hallelujah. Do you actually read it? Do you actually pick it up? What's the point of gathering the manna if you're not going to read? Man, it must be gathered daily. Do you understand that they, they, they get up and get a certain amount of day, and at the end of the day, if they hadn't, it rotted, right? You're only allotted so many minutes on this earth, and if you go tomorrow and you don't read, that day has been wasted. You're never getting it back. And you got an opportunity tomorrow to get up and just read a little bit of the book. Read a little bit of it to get it into your life, but it's not going to last you all week. How many of you guys are living off of just what Justin tells you on Sunday? No wonder we're anemic. We're puny as Christians because we're not feeding ourselves properly. Manna must be gathered early. Notice this, folks. They gather it every morning. Because if they waited, the sun would come up and burn it off. Those of you that understand the Georgia dew, you ever go out there and your feet are soaked? It's a horrible feeling. Go all day long, socks are soaked. Give it a few minutes in this Georgia sun and that dew goes away. You say, Corey, you have no idea. I have a schedule and my feet, soon as they hit the floor, they are on the move. Then I'd suggest you start reading before they hit the floor. I get it, guys. No, I understand the scheduling issues. I got it. We're busy people in a busy world. But I'd also tell you we got time for Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, all this other stuff. Why don't we have time to gather into this book? Manna, number eight, manna must be gathered by labor. The reason it was labor is because God wouldn't allow them to do it on Sunday, or excuse me, on Saturday. Now it's starting to sound like a seven-day abundance. All right? Now... Listen, he says, listen, you're going to go out, and on on Friday, I'm going to give you a double portion because I don't want you laboring on the Sabbath. It takes a little bit of work. Do you know what most people's problem is with manna? They don't want to put in the work. You know why most people don't want to go to the gym? They don't want to put in the work. Most people don't want to put in work anywhere. And most things in life require some dedication and some focus and some intestinal fortitude to get the job done. And it is labor to tell the world to be quiet for a little while and let me just focus on my Lord. But it's going to take a little bit of labor if you want to do it. Man, i number nine. Man, I must be gathered on your hands and knees. So when they came out of their tent... The only way to get it was to get down on the ground with your hands and knees and pick it up. The only way you're going to comprehend this book is through humility and prayer. God, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things in thy law. And show me what you want to see, God, and humble yourself. Number 10, manna was gathered by sufficiency. In other words, some had more, some had less. I'm not asking you to get up tomorrow and read 10 chapters. Somebody may be doing that already. I'm just challenging you, get up and read a chapter. Maybe maybe move that to two chapters. Maybe get it to three chapters. You know if you read about three and a half chapters a day, you can read through your Bible in a year. I'm not asking you to do it all in one time. Man, at least start somewhere. I'm almost done. I got two more. Watch. Manna is incomprehensible to the natural man. Watch this. He said, you know what manna means? The word manna means, what is it? And the average person comes to this book, and if you approach it as the natural man, you won't get it. Because this book is spiritually discerned, and the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the issue is the natural man. Now, we're not just talking about the lost man, but when you got saved, there's two men there, the natural man and then the saved man, the spiritual man. And what happens is if you come to this book in your natural intellect and your natural approach, you're not going to get it. I don't even get this. How many guys, don't raise your hand, please. How many times have you read and just went, this is boring? Don't be a tough guy. I've said it. I've been in Chronicles for weeks trying to muscle through going, oh, good night. Because the natural man doesn't get it. And I'm closing with this. Manna was despised by the mixed multitudes. Now, we can make application to lost men. And that's fine. But I think the mixed multitude of how that applies here is the same way. There is the 1973 version of Corey that was born on this planet, and then there's the 1994 Corey that was born again unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And those two guys don't get along. And the 73 version doesn't want to get up and read. The 73 version would rather lay in bed. The 73 version would rather just get to work and get it over with. The 94 loves it. Can't get enough of it. This book means everything to me from the spiritual man. This book means nothing to me from the natural carnal man. And the problem is most of us operate in our carnal system. We walk in the flesh. We don't walk in the spirit, which creates the problem. So I'm asking, and I know I had to fly through all that stuff. But I'm asking, do you have a habit of hanging out with God? Now, I don't care if you do it in the morning. I don't care when you do it. Do you have a time in your life every day where you spend some time with the Lord Jesus Christ by yourself? This is not a hand-raising thing. I'm asking you to ask yourself. He said, Cora, I would love to, but I'm just really, really busy. You're too busy for God? Then you're too busy. You need to clear out some stuff in your life. You need to get rid of some stuff. You better find some space in that 168 hours a week, that 24-hour period where you go, you know what? I'm just going to hang with my Lord for a little while because he did not save you and bring you out of that sin just for you to go live your life in peace and safety. He did that because he wants to have an eternal relationship with you. And he wants to have that opportunity to speak one-on-one to you like he did with Adam. And so do you do that in your daily life? Father, we love you. And out of all the things that you have done for us, you have provided so much. And we are thankful for the cross of Calvary and what Jesus Christ did on the cross that purchased our freedom. But now that we have been set free, God, we're asking that we would in return do what we were designed to do, and that is to commune with you and to hang out with you. God, help us to grow closer to you each and every day and to realize this relationship is separate from the corporate relationship we have with you. And help us, God, each one to know that that personal relationship is what builds the faith in our life. Father, we love you and thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.